Well, uh, it's great to be here again. Uh, and uh, this time, I, I think last time I was preaching, the time before I was just in the congregation. So um, I'm back here up the front, so you can decide by the end whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But it's great to be here and to share fellowship with you and to have the privilege of bringing God's word this morning. It's going to be helpful for you to have the passage that's read for us in front of you from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Um, I will warn you now, I've had a bit of a cough for the last two weeks. If I start coughing uncontrollably, I'm not going to drop down dead. All right? I'm, I'm going to be all right. It's just, if I cough, it's just the way it is at the moment. <coughs> there you go. Starts off already, as you mean to go on. We waste so much every day, millions of things that could be reused or recycled end up being thrown away. Keep written tidy inspires people to end waste for now and for future generations. It's a great statement, isn't it? In terms of caring for the planet, of not throwing stuff on the floor, of reusing things. And of course, in our world, we're used to recycling, aren't we? If you've got a house, you've got a recycling bin. I know that because you're in Leeds and I'm in Leeds, so I know you've got a recycling bin. But, you know, there's household waste sites. They're not called the tip anymore. It's a household waste recycling site. Reusing what, things we don't no longer want. Not throwing stuff away. Reducing waste. Well, in the dining room of Simon the leper, you would find plenty of people in agreement with that statement. Waste. Waste. It's terrible. Especially when you get a perfume jar smashed and costly ointment flowing off the head of the teacher. Why was the ointment wasted like that? Is what they say. Why this waste? We're in a dinner party at Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. We are sometime around the final week of Jesus' life and ministry before the cross. And we're at the house of Simon the leper. And I want you to not pass over that, because that's very important. Simon the leper. Here's the thing. If you were a leper in Bethany, you probably wouldn't be living in a house with other people. You wouldn't be having a dinner party. You'll be outside the town, amongst the caves. Because you had leprosy, cut off. So, I think it's safe to assume this guy Simon was probably one who was healed by Jesus. Hence, he's got a house. He can hold a dinner party. And Jesus and his disciples and other people are there. So that's where we are in this dinner party. Now in Mark's Gospel, one of the things that's helpful to look out for is what we might call a sandwich structure. Okay? Mark loves a sandwich, not the BLT variety. He loves, but he loves a sandwich. And by simply by that we mean this. You get two things, two events that are quite similar, and in the middle of them, between the two, is what Mark really wants you to take notice of. But the thing is, all three, the two bits of sandwich, the bit in the middle, all relate to one another. And they're all important, but the bit in the middle is most vital. So here, in verses 1 and 2, you've got the leaders, the chief priests and the scribes, 
want to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Okay? You then get in verses 3 to 9, the woman worshipping Jesus, and we're going to come to that in a minute. Then in verses 10 and 11, you get the leaders again, who want Jesus dead, and Jesus, uh, Judas then betraying Jesus to them. Yeah? So you get the, the, the wanting Jesus dead and the betrayal is the, the bread, if you like, the bread either side, and the bit in the middle, the woman worshipping Jesus, is the nice stuff. Okay? And in Mark's Gospel, he does this quite a lot. He does love a sandwich. And that's just to help us understand what Mark really wants us to focus on and then understand in terms of the whole passage. <clears throat> but it's also, which you've probably noticed, I know there's Jesus in here, and of course Jesus is the most important person, but there's two other people who are the focus. And one is the unnamed woman, and the other is Judas, the disciple. There's a contrast between the two. So what we're going to do is, we're going to focus this morning on worshipping Jesus. We're also going to think about using Jesus. And then we're going to think about how, how God uses both for his saving purposes. First of all, I want us to think about this. Worship Jesus extravagantly, like the woman. Worship Jesus extravagantly, like the woman. When I say that, I wonder what comes in your mind. Worship Jesus extravagantly. I, some of my relatives used to live in the West Midlands and they were Christians but they were the slightly more lively variety. And um, my, my parents um, who were Christians, they, they brought us up in what's called a strict Baptist chapel and it was pretty strict and it was pretty Baptist and it was in a chapel. So it, was, it did what it said on the tin. Um, but it was very formal, in pews, etc. You didn't say boo to a goose, you stood up, you sit down. Um, they, now my relatives, which is my... Their church um, was a slightly freer. Um, slightly is the understatement. Anyway, one time I was there, I think I was about 11 or 12, and I was there, along there, and I was staying uh, with my relatives, and I was my cousin, who's, a, who's about the same age as me. I'm in their church service, and... Uh, and um, and during it, which was always kind of live time, singing, etc., one of the guys, a guy called Keith, who's a, who's a lovely Christian, he just suddenly started jumping up in the middle and dancing. I thought, oh, that's interesting. It doesn't happen in my church, but, you know, it's fine. And, uh, he's dancing. and he starts doing cartwheels and handstands. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know how to react. I thought, I've never seen this before. What is this? And I turned to my cousin, for whom this was obviously normal, and he, and he was laughing. And I thought, all oh, right. So he thinks this is funny. There you go. What does it mean to worship extravagantly? Does it mean we do cartwheels? What does it mean to worship extravagantly? We have here, in Mark's account, a woman. A woman who comes to the house of a man who used to be a leper. So she comes to a place that knows that miracles are real. Because this leper's got a house and he's got a dinner party. A miracle must have happened. Jesus must have healed him. She comes to a place where miracles are real. She comes to where Jesus is. She comes prepared with the perfume. And she approaches the table. Might think, well, yeah, and well... Unless you're a waitress, and we're not told that she was, it would be disrespectful in Jewish custom for a woman to 
to approach a male dinner party like this. It's disrespectful. So she comes to where Jesus is, she comes with the perfume, approaches the table, she smashes the jar. She's not going to take it home with her. We've got a value of the perfume here. I don't know if you picked it up. It's worth 300 denarii, which um, is actually, well, one denarii is um, a day's wages. So work that out. That's more than a year's worth of money, if you think about it. How many, you know? £30,000 in today's money? £25,000? Who knows what the average salary is. But it's thousands, okay? Thousands of pounds. And she smashes the jar and throws it all over Jesus. With the value of that, if you think about it, that's probably going to be a family investment, isn't it? Or an heirloom. Something valuable to the family. And she smashed it. She's done it all. All over Jesus. For Jesus. Why? Why does she do it? Well, here's, here it is. I think she recognises what, or more importantly, who is valuable to her. She is showing that Jesus is this valuable. More valuable than money. More valuable than financial security. More valuable than her reputation. More valuable than her self-esteem. He's that valuable. If you go to somebody's house, you can see what they value. If it's very clean and tidy, not like our house, you know they think being clean and tidy is valuable. If the TV is nicely on the stand or on the on a, on a table, whatever, you can see the TV is valuable. If it was smashed on the floor, you'd know it isn't valuable. You can see from heirlooms or antiques, etc. You know, it's obvious when you go to somebody's house, the things that are costly, precious, vital part of life, are in the pride of place they're looked after. Okay? It's true, isn't it? We can see here what this woman thinks is so valuable. Jesus. Jesus. I haven't got anything that I own that is worth this amount of money. But if I did, would I give it all to Jesus? See, why is Jesus so valuable? Why is he so valuable? Well, I think the answer is, is that she has been transformed by him. She's not just rocking up here and thinking, oh, I've got me, me, me family heirloom here, I'm just going to smash it on his head, and, you know. You don't do that kind of thing, do you? Jesus is so valuable, she's been transformed by him. And we know it by what Jesus says. Because Jesus says that her actions go hand in hand with spreading the gospel. Verse 9. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Yeah? The good news about Jesus and this woman, just like we're doing this morning. So clearly, she's been transformed by the gospel, changed by it. The fact that free forgiveness for her can be received. Through Jesus. You see, what this woman does is worship. It's worship. And what she has done is beautiful, says Jesus. Verse 6. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. It's beautiful, says Jesus. 
Now, worship is not smashing open your Chanel number nine at the first opportunity, or whatever you've got at home. But it's about what's going on in here. It's about your motive. Your heart is what drives you. And what drives her is that she is devoted to Jesus. She adores Jesus. She gives everything for Jesus. She worships Jesus. Now in church circles, you say the word worship, people immediately think a singing group or a music group. An outward action. And that's okay, but I'm afraid I don't like, when everyone says the worship band, it... Because in the end, the band or group or whoever are helping it, are worshipping in what they're doing and they're helping everyone else to worship at that particular point, but they're not rocking up at my house at six o'clock in the morning to help me to worship. Yeah? Worship is not just singing. It is singing, it's far more than that. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is how we live. Worship is what motivates us. You know, worshipping Jesus extravagantly is not showing off. This woman is not showing off. See the reaction she gets? They scold her. She's not showing off. Worship is valuing Jesus above yourself. It's being willing to stake all that you have, all of your future, all of your reputation, all of your life on Jesus. On Jesus' death and resurrection. On Jesus' perfection. On Jesus' salvation. That is why it is beautiful and not wasteful. You know, she gives everything for Jesus because he deserves everything. But she does it, and I don't think she is aware of the significance. You know, Jesus says in verse 8, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I don't think this woman is fully aware of this. All she's thinking about is worship, but Jesus says something more profound is happening. She's prepared my body for death. See, Jesus is going to die for this woman. And he's going to die for us. He's going to be buried for our sin. And how do we respond to that? The fact that Jesus dies for us. Well, we respond with extravagant worship, don't we? We overflow with thankfulness. With praise, with gratitude, with service, with love. See, extravagant worship is not whooping and hollering, or whatever. It's giving everything for Jesus. That's extravagant. So worship Jesus extravagantly like the woman. Secondly, don't use Jesus like Judas. Don't use Jesus like Judas Don King the man in the middle with the funny hair for decades Don King has been one of the world's most influential boxing managers and promoters Don King is incredibly rich 
In many ways, Don King does encapsulate the American dream for those from the black community. A man who's gone from nothing to everything. He's been involved in the careers of Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, and Mike Tyson. And he is phenomenally wealthy. Yet, what's interesting about Don King, I'm not casting any aspersions here, so I don't get sued. But here's the thing. Many of his former clients have ended up in poverty, for whatever reason. But Don King has stayed rich. And there's been a number of lawsuits from his former clients, former boxers, to get money out of him that they are owed. They've alleged that he's ripped them off. That King used them to get rich and didn't pay them what they were owed. He used them. When we read uh, Mark 14, verses 1 to 11, we do, even if we've read this over and over again, we do think, what is Judas up to? How could Judas betray Jesus? He has been with him for three years. He has left his life, whatever it was, we're not entirely sure, to follow Jesus. He's he's been with the others from Galilee to Jerusalem. What on earth? Well, you see, Jesus is valuable to Judas. His death is valuable to Judas. But not in the same way as for the woman. Because Jesus' death is something that Judas can make money out of. See, we know that Judas used Jesus to get rich. We know from John chapter 12 that Judas was the disciples' treasurer. But he was greedy. And we're told he stole from the money bag. He was a thief. So when Jesus predicts his death, the gravy train of Jesus is about to end. Judas is no longer going to be able to strip the communal fund of its assets. Because Judas has been using Jesus. You know, in our world, people talk about furthering, furthering their own goals, don't they? About career, whether it's politics or career or education, family, you know, further your own goals, achieve your goals. I came across this. Be obsessed with your goals, not people. Be obsessed with your goals, not people. That's Judas, isn't it? Judas wants to further his own goals. See, that he, the goals of Judas are what drives his interest in Jesus. It's not Jesus who's important, it's Judas. Judas doesn't want his life to be transformed by Jesus. Well, not spiritually, only financially. See, Judas uses Jesus. And in the house of Simon the leper, he sees this woman's devotion to Jesus. And of course, Judas doesn't have it. He doesn't understand this extravagant worship that is going on. But even if he doesn't understand it, he could discover why she has it, couldn't he? He could take her to one side and say, I don't understand what's going on, please tell me. But no, he doesn't. 
He doesn't discover how he may have it. Judas exploits his own position. I wonder if you remember the time, or perhaps you still have a time, where you're shocked by things. Shocked by disasters. Shocked by behaviour. Shocked by language. Shocked by attitudes. But here's the thing. The more you see of disasters, the more you see of behaviour, the more bad language or attitudes you see or experience in your life, the danger is we become nonplussed. It's not that we're able to ignore it. It's just we're not bothered about it anymore. We don't get shocked. It doesn't affect me. You know, if you just see a news story on the TV of a disaster, you know, whether it's a famine or an earthquake, or, if you've seen what happens in the end, and it's true, once you've seen one, you've seen them all. When you've seen the, seen the load of poverty-stricken people in the third world, you've seen them all. You've become nonplussed about it. Like your five pounds, ten pounds to comic relief, but it doesn't, doesn't hit you. You become nonplussed. Judas is nonplussed about the upcoming death of his supposed master. He's nonplussed. He's going to make some money out of it. How many of us feel nonplussed about Jesus' death? How many of us have not really taken on board what he achieved for us? How many of us do not really appreciate the cost of the cross? And how many of us are more interested in what Jesus can do to further what we want? To further our goals? To, you know, feather our desires rather than how much he desires to transform us? You see, if Jesus looked at all of us here, would he say our lives are full of the beauty of worship? Or are they full of the beast of self-interest? You know, there is a powerful temptation in church. And the temptation is this, to get everything that we can out of church, to get as much fellowship as we can get, to use it, for ourselves. And then when we seem to get less out of it than others, or what we might have used to have done, we then withdraw. We step back from it. We cut and run. We try and get it elsewhere. Why? Because church doesn't deliver anymore. Or this church doesn't deliver anymore. I'm not talking about whether it preaches the gospel or is faithful. It doesn't deliver for me. It doesn't give me what I want. You see, if that goes on, what are we actually saying? We're saying, actually, we want worship on our terms. We want to use Jesus and his people, his church. But here's the thing. Jesus demands that we worship on his terms. With everything. One of the most chilling things, I think, having studied this a bit, is this. is what, Jesus, sorry, what Judas heard Jesus say. See, Judas heard Jesus say this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed 
when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Judas heard Jesus say this, and yet he still uses him. Judas looks at the woman denying herself and taking up her cross and following Jesus, yet he wants to save his life. He wants to gain the whole world. He's willing to lose, to lose his life in the end. He's willing to forfeit his soul. He's willing to be ashamed of Jesus when he returns. See, Judas wants to use Jesus and he'll lose his soul. We must not be like Judas. So we are to worship Jesus extravagantly like the woman. Don't use Jesus like Judas. Finally, trust divine grace. Trust divine grace. If you follow or watch or read any drama series or um, novel or film, unless it's completely weird uh, European one, which I seem to like, um, you will come across a point in the drama where the, ca- the things are going on with the characters and they're going to go somewhere, they're going to do something, they're going to meet someone, and because you kind of know what's going on in the story, you, you want to say, no! Don't go there! Don't meet that person, because you kind of understand what's going on in the story. Don't trust that person. Of course, it's all part of the story, and it's got to happen for there to be a story, but there's still a kind of like, if we invested in it, you think, no, don't do it. Well, this woman's encounter with Jesus is sandwiched by what is going on outside the house between the chief priests and Judas. And I think if you read Mark for the first time, you might be shouting, no, don't do it, Judas. And how can these leaders want Jesus dead, but they don't risk an uproar? That's what they say in verse 2, not during the feast. Why do they care nothing for the life of another human being? A fellow Jew. One of their people. How can Judas betray his master? How can they pay him? It's awful, isn't it? Just on a basic level, it is awful what is going on. And why isn't God stepping in? Why isn't God stepping in here? Why doesn't God... Do something. Why doesn't he do something? This is unjust, it's wrong, it's evil. And we do think like that, don't we? Why hasn't God stepped in in the Syrian civil war? Why hasn't God stepped in with the tensions in the Gulf and Iran and Saudi Arabia and other places? You know, there's a war still going on in Ukraine, you wouldn't know it from the news, but there is. Between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Why hasn't God stepped in? You might have seen the pictures of what's going on at the Mexican border with immigrants and the authorities. Why hasn't God stepped in there? And why didn't God step in at Auschwitz 
Or why didn't God step in at the Somme? And why didn't God step in across the reins of, of monarchs in Britain who were horrible? And why didn't he step in in the time of Genghis Khan? And why didn't God step in in the torture of the Roman Colosseums? Why? 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 Why doesn't God just do something? How can God allow it? Why doesn't God just do something here? Well, the hard truth is this, is that all of the events of our world are decreed and are used by God's grace for his saving purposes. Jesus doesn't need to know there's a plot going on outside the house of Simon the leper to know that he is going to die. He already knows that. He knows he's going to get betrayed. He knows he's going to be on a cross. He knows he's going to be buried. It's going to happen. And Judas is going to sell his soul. And the chief priests are happy to plot Jesus' death. And it's horrible and it's wrong. But here's the thing. It's divine grace. It's divine grace. Because God is using even the evil of humans... So that we can be saved. Think of it like that. God is using even the evil of human beings so that we can be saved. Using Judas so we can be saved. Using these religious leaders so that we can be saved. Using their evil so that we can be saved. It's divine grace. And that is what we must trust. We must trust his grace. His free mercy to us. Because here's the thing, it's divine grace that we are saved, isn't it? It's not by what we've earned. It's not by what we've done or the family line we've been born in or how many times we've come to church. I'm not saying you shouldn't come to church, come every week. But it's not about, you know, your attendance record. It's not about how many times you've prayed. It's by grace we are saved. That's what the Bible tells us. It's divine grace that accepts our worship. God doesn't have to accept our worship. Jesus doesn't have to accept this woman's worship. But he does. By grace. It's divine grace that the gospel gets proclaimed. You know, how is it that the gospel can still be proclaimed when people hate it? How is it that in some of the most dangerous places to be a Christian in this world... The gospel is flourishing and people are becoming Christians in their tens and their twenties and their hundreds. It's by divine grace, isn't it? It's divine grace that our sins are forgiven. We don't deserve our sins to be forgiven. But by grace they are. It's divine grace that Jesus will return. We're thinking about that a bit earlier in the service, weren't we? He doesn't have to return. He doesn't have to take his people to be with him. But he will. And that's divine grace. Grace And it's divine grace that Jesus, who had no sin, was sacrificed for us on the cross in our place. She has done what she could, says Jesus. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And it has been. Because you can trust divine grace. You see, the gospel story goes on. I don't mean 
Jesus dying on the cross. That's happened. But the story of people being saved, of the gospel being proclaimed, of people being saved, and over and over, is still going on. And this event is still being retold. See, it's divine grace that Jesus defeats death and rises rises from death for you and for me. It's divine grace that the gospel saves. It's divine grace that Jesus accepts our worship. So, how do you respond to this divine grace? How do you respond to God's free mercy to you? We can be very British and sit here with our arms folded and, and legs crossed and go, yes. And that's fine because we're British. Okay. But in your heart, how do you respond? I don't want you to do cartwheels unless you really feel led. Because I'll you'll probably break your arm or your leg and we'll have to get a first aider out. But what is going on in your heart? How is your heart responding to God's divine grace? His free mercy to you. Do you trust divine grace? And is that then leading to worship? Or are you using divine grace? And that way you're wasting your life. Are you like the woman, or are you like Judas? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that Jesus speaks the truth. We want to thank you that your word is truth. Lord, we need you to change us. We need you to transform us. That we would once again... Behold the glory and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and his return that will come. Our hearts and our minds will be captured, not just by the wonder of it, but by the transforming nature of it, that it changes us from sinners who hate God, who are enemies, to friends. Lord, may that, worship you, may that make us worship you extravagantly. Not so that we're showing off, but from our hearts and in our lives, that we are worshipping you. Lord, may we not use you like Judas did. Lord, forgive us if we have used you and your church and other people and this life for ourselves. Change us. We repent of it and ask that we would once again worship you from our hearts. Lord, help us to trust your grace, that whatever happens in this world, we are secure in you. We thank you that your grace to us doesn't last for 10 minutes or a year, not even a lifetime. We thank you that we can trust your grace forever, as you promised us. And we pray it in your name. Amen.